Hello and welcome to yet another episode of Red Hacks, that show about journalism, socialism, and being a journalist in a neoliberal world. I am Jana Ramiro, your humble host, and my guests have now been too many to mention in this introduction, so I can only recommend you visit soundcloud.com slash forward Paul Theory Other, where you can find every episode of this show under a playlist helpfully named Red Hacks. As always, Red Hacks is part of the very excellent Politics Theory Other podcast. And if you want to show your support and get access to all sorts of extra content, don't forget to follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and subscribe via iTunes, Acast, Blueberry, and Spotify. This time we're doing things a little differently. I'm recording without our sound engineer, the ingenious J.A. Pinto, although by the time you're listening to this, he will have worked his magic on this episode. Instead, I've traveled to our guest's own studio, which I think is pretty fitting, as we'll be talking about podcasting, starting your own media, and hanging out with your mates in a basement. Today's guest is no other than the British left's favorite class clown, the comedian, writer, and trash future host, Riley Quinn. Riley, it's so good to have you on Red Hacks. I can believe you're on my show before I've been on yours since we originally met on the basis that you wanted to have me on Trash Future. Indeed. Well, we'll make sure we fix that soon. You know, usually I like to ask people how they got into journalism, but with you, I thought it'd be really interesting to go straight into Trash Future uh, and then we can weave your own story from there. So the Trash Future podcast started in July 2017 and it was just you, your co-host Milo Edwards and fellow funny man Charlie Palmer on some very lo-fi mics. Uh, <laughs> tell me about the inception of Trash Future. What brought these three dudes together to make a podcast about, quote, how the future is trash? Well, okay, God, that's a lot. Um, I think we still have that terrible mixer uh, somewhere hidden in, in, in this room. Um, but let's see. Okay, so I, um, I was uh, doing stand-up comedy in, uh, in London uh, sort of as a hobby because I was feeling quite you know, directionless, like I needed some kind of creative outlet. And while I was at university, I did stand-up comedy as well, and it was, I don't know, I... The times I did it seemed to go okay, so I decided, well, why not? Why not just continue that? Um, and then followed sort of some period of time, a, a sort of five to six month, maybe a little longer, realization that um, developing in the London comedy scene was essentially going to a series of awful basements and, and pubs where you'd have to deal with, like, Comedians who were so failed that they were booking open mic gigs, who are just just great, great people. Um, and you would be doing sort of the same five minutes that you'd kind of sort of memorize to the same set of open mic comedians, all of whom are trying to work out and become better comics. And I saw that this this was no outlet for, this was no, not only was it no outlet, because you had to do the same five minutes every time, or very similar five minutes, because you were trying to get this one comedy set that would be just good enough that you could maybe take it somewhere else, then you could take it somewhere else, and so on. Um, but that it didn't seem to be leading anywhere, because it felt like I was taking a class on typewriter repair in, uh, you know, 2018. <laughs> um, so, well, 17, I suppose, at the time. Um, and I looked at the success of sort of American podcasts that had, like, mirrored my own um, political leanings which surprisingly, because I'm on Red Hacks, are to the left, um, and that also were doing so in a funny way. And I was like, fuck it, let's do something like that here. And so I just called the funniest person I knew from the open mic segment, uh, Milo, 
who is currently doing a a, a podcast in Russian next door, um, and sort of proposed the idea to him. Said that you know here's here's the deal. You're very funny. I have this idea. Um, I also have this mixer and these mics, and let's just give it a roll. Um, and then he just said, I, I, yeah, I used to do something like this in Cambridge. Here's my friend Charlie. Uh, why don't we just we just do that? Um, and the fine tradition of uh, basically five guys, one towel started. Uh, that came later. <laughs> Damn. And I thought it was some sort of like, you know, inception. Yeah. No. Tradition. It, it, this, the Initiation. Origin, the origin story is, I'm, I'm, I'm looking back on what the origin story was and I'm like, Five God guys, damn. one towel origin story. Yeah. Uh, Pornhub.exe. I knew I, this yeah. episode of Red Hacks would be like layered with in-jokes from Trash Future. It's going to be a very meta episode. <laughs> so to all my usual listeners, I apologize in advance. So strap in, folks. Get, re- get ready to put down your AirPods and just be like, what? So you, you come together with these dudes. You are, and I, I think we, we should, it would be remiss not to talk about Chapa Trap House. Yeah. The, uh, if you've lived under a rock, it's a political punditry comedy uh, show that took the U.S. by storm in 2016, particularly around the uh, presidential elections. Uh, I know nothing about, you know, Dirtbag Left. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping you'll uh, uh, enlighten me and possibly my uh, uh, listeners as well on this. Um but so I wanted to know, a how to what extent you've been influenced by that. The tone of uh, of Trash Future is not exactly the same as as Chapo. I don't know if that's because you guys are based in Britain rather than the states, or if it's a diff- just a different composition. Mm. Um, so yeah, talk to me a little bit about how you see this explosion of uh, political comedy podcast happening. How much influence it had on you uh, on the inception of Trash Future. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, well, I think without look, I'll be honest. Without Chapo, there is there is no trash future. I feel like what they did was they they I I I can't say if they invented it, but they certainly they certainly made it the obvious like hegemonic way to do a left comedy podcast, which is again for the four or five listeners that aren't familiar, is essentially to through the through the lens of you might of i guess satirizing the sort of breathtaking smarm of uh, mostly the um the sort of centrist uh, faux progressives that have dominated much of the left in America and the UK for the last couple of mm-hmm. decades their worship of credentialism their um their just absolute slavishness to bipartisanship um and then at the same time the uh, pure mendacious evil of the of the right in both countries uh that that they have basically allowed themselves to become a kind of endless tom and jerry that takes itself very seriously um it's it 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 is essentially the only one of the only ways to look at it is to just point to heighten and heighten its ridiculousness but unlike say your trevor noah's your john stewart's rather than just pointing at that and saying haha how dumb um we we the the smart Harvard educated et cetera et cetera lovely people are look down upon the dum dums of the Republican Party or whatever. Um, what the left does, I think, in terms of comedy, is it gives you something else, something it's not just relative, something that isn't just me smart you dumb, but something that is um, me attempting to build a better world, you attempting to negotiate with CO two, 
Okay. And how did you see that happening for you guys here comparatively yeah. to how chapel works for instance but i mean we could yeah. talk about a series of other of other obviously you you guys have bunta vista uh, yeah. which is another similar podcast in australia uh guests all the time so yeah talk talk about us like or talk sure. about how it worked for so you guys here. i think i think i, I got slightly off track and started talking about the more general approach to that that comedic approach um no, no, i think that's yeah. important i think <laughs> i think that sets the scene that explains yeah. how it came together because it's definitely a phenomenon you know like we mm. haven't really had that certainly not in this country uh ever you know like political comedy in this country took a very different uh, yeah. uh yeah. form well political comedy in this country i feel like the American and, UK and British approaches to political comedy are probably summed up by our more popular political comedy shows, where the well, well, the most popular political comedy show in the U.S. is probably The Daily Show, which is sort of center progressive, mostly panders to basically middle class people, and ma made its bones more or less skewering Bush for being an, an idiot. Um, it hasn't known what to do with Trump. It's been a very popular still, but you know it's been comedically floundering. Same with SNL and when they tried to get political and so on. Whereas here we've had a, a long tradition of something like Have I Got News for You, which is our, probably our probably our biggest political comedy show, I'd imagine. Certainly the longest lasting. Yeah. It's it, let's just let's call let's say that's our standard political comedy show. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but it's certainly up there. And what in the style is so different because what the, its style is not one of, of of punditry, but rather a group of very, very established, um, approved friends from the inside of politics having a, having jokes with one another about the foibles, mostly of um, almost private eye style of people who aspire above their station. Or of well, I don't think the, yeah. it's a coincidence that Ian Hislop Indeed. is yeah. in Have I Got News for exactly. You. Exactly. Um, I mean, I, whenever I think of Private Eye, I always think of like how much sort of arrogant hatred they had for, for Mark Fisher, mm. um, where he was regularly featured in Sood's Corner for, you know, daring to suggest that that there is a sort of a psychological deadening of, of living in capitalism. They were like, oh, well, there's no profit to psychologically deadening. Why are they psychologically deadening you? You must be just some moron who's a pseudoscientist. And now they're uh, a pseudoscientist, pseudo-intellectual. And now those same people are scrambling to try and explain why this world that they thought they understood so well has crumbled away under their feet as their precious liberal consensus has, be shown, has been shown to be essentially charlatanism. But then you guys show up in a series of other uh, uh, other shows that are me not meant to be, you know, comedy, but certainly have a sort of more approachable tone. And a lot of them are in podcast form. So how do you feel you then transmit that message to to an audience that that is on the left? I.e., how do you position yourself against this neoliberal hegemonic rhetoric? Well, I think one of the main things, and this is like I'm I am a huge devotee of, of Fisher. Uh, one of the we know. yeah, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> one of the main one of the main um, things that I think a lot of even not just that political culture and that journalistic culture, but that comedy culture does is make you feel insane if you have this niggling feeling in the back of your head that um, all of this all of this economically responsible austerity, this promotion of growth by trying to turn every business into Uber or whatever. <laughs> It, it the that culture all is there to try and make you feel crazy mm. like your doubts are your your doubts are are ludicrous that you're not actually miserable or if that if you're miserable you're the aberration and mm. that everything actually is going well you know it's the um 
and the and the comedy side of that is is to look at something like have as if you think of like if you're thinking of have I got news for you, how just outwardly dismissive they were of the whole of of the whole Corbin project at every step, you know, saying oh well it's um that that this very real very raw message of of rebuilding society for the people that live in it was dismissed as you know just a bit of a bit of trifle uh, the economic illiteracy of someone who never grew out of the 1970s or what have you, that can make you feel crazy, hmm. right? And I think a lot of what we're doing look also at the outset i don't want to overstate the importance of what we do we're some goofuses that joke around in a basement but we are goofuses that joke around in a basement i hope in such a way that when you hear it it kind of gels with what your experience of reality is and it almost says no you're not crazy they're the ones who are crazy if we go back to this overlapping and i i I'm bringing this on because you, you just mentioned the question, you know, like we're just some goofuses in a basement. But actually what you guys at Trash Future did, which actually I don't know whether Chapo did or not, mm. because as I said, I'm no expert in this in this field. Uh, I must say I'm a, a very serious, boring person myself, you know, like <laughs> 31 going on 65. But, um, but you guys from very early on brought on the show a series of young journalists who might or might not consider themselves on the left, probably on the center left in, in some respect. Um, and it's true that, or, or I suspect, at least as far uh, as a wider audience is concerned, that you guys exploded when you had uh, food critic and, uh, Jay Rayner on. But before <laughs> that, you already had a series of... of Jay Rayner's hardly on the left as well. We I know, just, yeah. We just thought, uh, you know, here's... Any almost any question you have around you brought this person on, they don't seem to be on the left, is answered by we thought it would be funny. <laughs> well, it, it solves all your issues. Um, but it, but I mean, it was a good episode, and in general, I I don't think that to comment about things on the left, you need to bring people who are on the left on. Yeah. But I think that it was very interesting that. Up until that point, most of your guests and I, I have a list or I started a list and then I felt like this is impossible because the majority of people you brought on in, in the first year of, of Trash Future were young journalists, uh, people who had a quite, uh, you know, significant following on Twitter. So it felt a bit like a reunion of the Internet. Mm -hmm. Um it was an interesting approach to take because you kind of, even though you are taking this as satire and you are just being doofuses in a basement, you are bringing in, uh, you know, a generation of people who both by virtue of their jobs but also by virtue of their age are paying attention to to Corbyn, to changes on the political uh, landscape uh, and so on. So how do you feel that influenced what Trash Future became? Was I mean, it on purpose? <laughs> oh, or was it just the people you knew? Look, this Did, whole... Were you just hunting for, like, followers on Twitter? Is no, this it? No, no. Number one, with regards to Trash Future, none of this is on purpose. This whole office is basically by mistake. Um, and there have been several... I guess what it, for us, it, what it always was, was we, we've gone through several different eras of... Eras? Fuck. We've gone through several different periods of having access to different kinds of people primarily. What a diva, eras. Fuck me, I know. Um, <laughs> I'm canceling myself right now. Go the on. show is over. <laughs> Not this show, the Trash Future. It's canceled, I'm ripping up the lease, I'm burning all the microphones. But no, okay, so there are, you could say like there are a few periods because number one, with hosts, what would happen is we would reach out to someone and just say, 
hey, do you want to come on? We kind of want to talk about this thing that we think you might want to talk about. We just sort of, and we don't, when we're not going to be serious about it. One of our early theses was that a lot of people who are usually asked to be funny want to talk about something serious, and a lot of people who are usually asked to be serious want the opportunity to make a few jokes. And so we always tended to pitch it that way. And we would sort of come up with episode concepts, and then we would think, okay, who's someone who is able to talk about this, and um, who is someone who might have written about it, who's someone who might have... Um, even like been been involved directly. So an example is one of our very early guests was Maya Kossoff, who is the uh, who at the time was the Vanity Fair tech correspondent, and she had just tweeted about having received a uh, a Internet of Things enabled coffee cup um, that somehow connected to your phone and would keep your coffee at an optimum temperature you could set with your phone, but had such a low battery life that it didn't really matter. And I was delighted by this idea. And so I asked Maya to come on because I just saw, oh, you've tweeted about this thing. We must talk about it. Mm -hmm. And then I also was, this was also at, at some point where Twitter had been, you know, it, every two weeks Twitter comes out with some, some defense of why it keeps the Nazis on its website. Mm -hmm. uh, and it had recently come out with one of those. So I said, oh, by the way, do you mind also talking about this thing? And so in the end, just sort of seeing this, coffee cup um spawned one of our probably our first good episode so you end up talking about both nazis and coffee cups uh, that's the well that's actually kind of one of the ideas of the structure of the show and early on we stuck to this much more now we kind of vary it a little bit more which yeah, talk to yeah. me about the process because yeah. for those who don't know uh, i am privy to the knowledge that you have a WhatsApp group where a lot of the layers of the in-jokes, because you work a lot on sort of jokes you made in very early on episodes that are still Years running. Ago. Yeah. We forget how they arose. And, and it becomes sort of incredibly uh, um, insular without being alienating, I think, uh, although it takes a couple of episodes to get into the tone of things <laughs> as far I, as I as I found out. Um, but also, you know, like it becomes almost surreal at times. And mm -hmm. and so tell me about the process of, of scripting or of shaping uh, yeah. these episodes, or is it really all down to uh, uh, the chaos? Uh, it's all about finding the balance between order and chaos. Mm -hmm. um, so so there's basically Nate Bathia, who is their producer, by the way, I should add, mm -hmm. uh, whipping you guys into shape. No. Okay. I'm sure Nate will disagree. But. I no. It's the there's two whippings into shape. The whipping whippings into shape. The first is the content whipping into shape, and that's me. Okay. So my role on the show is to find is to find what we're going to talk about, develop a theme for each episode, uh, or a couple of themes, um, and then work that into notes where I will, I'll know the points we have to hit. I might write down some specific things I will say if the conversation lags to keep it moving. And then I'll also know what the point of each segment is. Mm -hmm. So we never, or we try to never. The thing is, the other thing is, there's a slight digression. If you listen to many... So the man who was just making a point about shepherding the conversation. Indeed, but go on. indeed, indeed. I get to make the digressions because I shepherd the conversation. Oh, you get to make the digressions here. Damn, I've never, I've never experienced this before. Um, but um, if you listen to the early episodes of the show, you'll notice that they're, for lack of a better word, pretty bad. Um, they are 
sort of relatively unfocused. They're probably much closer to something that looks like it's trying to ape the style of Chapo Trap House quite badly. Mm. Um, I'd say for the first X number of episodes, um, it was like that before we essentially, I think, found our own voice mm. and then were able to take some of the grammar that Chapo established for a show and make it our own. Um, but one of the key early discoveries in the show going from a not very good Chapo Trap House imitator to being its own thing and having, I think, its own quality was when I finally sussed out that each segment needs a premise. It needs a point. It needs to be driving towards something. So mm -hmm. we're not just making fun of Toby Young because Toby Young is fun to make fun of. Um, if we're taking and making fun of some editorial of Toby Young's where he talks about how, like, you know, um, his children have taken to flicking peas at him at the dinner and he blames the intolerant left. Um, we are trying to make a larger point about the victim complex that seems to drive most um, conservative op-ed writing and seems to drive most conservative psychosis. Um, and it was when we made that realization that these, I think the show got better. And so incorporating into the notes then, the notes they are referred to as almost a religious reverence, um, is not just the point the the p points of an article or a conversation or of a product breakdown which I'll I'll get into that we want to hit but also the the message we're trying to send hmm. um, because like I said earlier the comedy isn't just Toby Young's a moron although that's twenty percent of it it's Toby Young's a moron and Mm. Here's here's why here's the two ways in which that matters and the one overarching reason it really doesn't matter. Mm. Get my meaning. So that's a bit, so shaping the conversation of the show is about directing a chaotic, uh, fast-paced, and hopefully amusing conversation towards those different ends. With that in mind, I always remember a conversation we had when we first met nearly a year ago now. And at one point you mentioned that you credited the success of podcasting, particularly of shows like yours, to the fact that they mimic a kind of conversation in your living room with your mates that anyone can kind of drop in mm -hmm. and, again, bridge uh, the general, I think, alienation that a lot of people feel under neoliberalism. How do you feel that the format of a show like Trash Future, as you've just described it, fits perfectly with this necessity to have a bunch of friends bantering with purpose <laughs> uh, in your ear uh, oh every, every week. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, I th I, I, my thinking on this hasn't has stayed pretty much as it always was, which is that one of the functions... Podcasting has many functions, um, and there are a million hypotheses as to why the left seems to be doing relatively well in podcasting. Um, but one of the functions of podcasting is, as we discussed, a friendship simulator. Um, I think especially in cities, especially among um, younger people, not exclusively, of course, in both cases, um, we are living in an incredibly uh, lonely and alienating time, and the... And, and and at the same time, I think, <laughs> weirdly, um, our jobs in many cases, again, not all cases, but especially like your standard white collar professional, whatever, um, 
their job requires so little of them that really I think a lot of what they're doing is sort of filling space. They're just sort of, it's like, okay, I'm going to get in. I'm going to have to make it to the end of the day. My God, I'm bored. Um, And the idea of a podcast is that you can be some sort of simulating the thing that you really, really like doing that you'd rather be doing while you're doing this thing that you unfortunately have to do. And I'm not sure if that's a good element of podcasting or not. I'm Mm. quite ambivalent about it. I go back and forth on whether it's good or bad. In as much as, on the one hand, it's making a lot of people's lives a little more bearable. And look, also, I'm aware of a lot of our listeners aren't um, aren't like you know white collar office drones. A lot of working working at the the spreadsheet mine. A lot of them are also like I was taught. We had a live show the other day, and I was talking to some of our listeners. They were saying that some of them are. you know, like, like they drive uh, trucks on film sets and so on, and just mm. like to just like to have that there. Um, but the f- but the feeling, uh, and, but the feeling of making making a bad things work in general more tolerable. And to what extent are you serving as a functionary of those who want to extend the cult of work and make more people work and mm. so on and so on? So it's the classic accelerationist versus other argument. I don't know what the opposite of an accelerationist is. Decelerationist? A handbrake? Slow down? Yeah. Uh, a slow down, take it easy. I think this bit leads neatly on to how you yourself um, reconcile your own many uh, identities, I guess, because you don't do Trash Future as a full-time job just yet. Um, you, you do work in a spreadsheet mine. Uh, but above all, you're also a writer. You write for, for Jacobin, you've written for The Independent, you've written for several places, uh, where actually you do take a sort of more serious tone. Um, and I found it was really interesting to realize that in the beginning of Trash Future, you used a pseudonym, uh, then you've fully embraced your your yeah, the pseudonym true lasted for like 10 minutes um so but but i think that's an interesting you know approach and kind of like how do you or how do we in you know again late capitalism uh the world of of you know slash identities i.e you know podcaster slash author slash uh office worker um occurs so so yeah tell me a little bit about that i don't really see my own I don't I don't really see those two things as particularly separate. I don't sort of put on one hat when it's time to be a goofball. Um for the listener, the hat I'm currently wearing says dad bod on it. Um and I don't put on another hat that would be, I don't know, like an academic gown, I guess, um, when I'm trying to like write a more serious article. Um and I I see it for me it's just it's two different ways of expressing a lot of the same thing. Um I feel like my my writing style, such as I have one, is sort of one of, at least I try to uh, to write with a sense of, sort of white hot fury, and in some ways I think that can come out as serious. But some of the some of the best ways I find I can express that in writing is through you know um, ba- is is through uh, humor, even if it's in a more serious piece, to mm. sort of still have humor in it. So for me, it's not one or the other; it's how much of each. Mm. Um, and so like, for example, um, I'm recently was asked to write a piece for Jacobin, um, that I'm going to probably have to start on after we're (laughs) done this because it is due soon, um, about 
about na- about sort of why we ought to nationalize golf courses. I think because one of them just one of them just I think had that idea and then emailed that to me and said, Riley, can you can you write the case for nationalizing golf courses in your usual angry, funny way? And I was like, okay, I guess I have a usual way now. Um, but that's but that's the I guess that both of those feel of those feelings the the sort of anger and disdain I suppose are very present in both the podcast and the writing and the only the thing the thing I think is the odd man out here isn't necessarily the podcast or the writing but the show within a show Commie Book Club mm. um, which is where I uh, read a, it's a solo hour episode of just me um, which is let me tell you hard to do um well yeah you're you're reading quite a lot of books because you produce one every what two weeks or something uh, i produce a comedy book club a month right now but that might get more frequent um but also i read more than i I read more than one book because i have to decide which one i want to talk about Mm. um so i just sort of Every, every so often, sort of Verso or Pluto or whatever just drives a dump truck full of, you know, new socialist theory books up to my house and tips it into my living room. My heart bleeds for you, Riley. <laughs> the amount of free books you get. <laughs> yes. Um, and then I, I sort of make my way through them and I decide what, emo- what connects with me emotionally. Uh, what piece of writing do I feel particularly emotionally connected to? Um, and then the mission of Kami Book Club is to take this piece of writing, uh, which is usually some, a little bit more academic, maybe something someone wouldn't grab right away. Mm. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's different things. Like I think my last one was by Helena Sheehan, and it was um, um, Marxism and the Philosophy of Science, a Critical History, mm-hmm. uh, which was just about the ways in which, uh, as a Marxist, you can and we have historically approached questions of what is what is knowledge, how can things be known, what is science, what is the true and correct aim of science, and how should we interact with these fundamental questions when they're posed to us by other people. Um, and what I try to do is take the very, very, very good and powerful and quite convincing ideas that are in these books, but often locked away behind academic language, and explain and react and personalize and make them as best as I can accessible to a wider uh, audience that just wants to listen for an hour and have something, and not just have something explained to them, but I sort of work out what these books are as well. So it's like we're kind of working it out together. Mm. And then we But this away is, again, it. like we go back to the question of, you know, simulating a friendship, a relationship with the listener in a world that is so atomized because you're really just alone in a basement in East London uh, talking into a microphone about these books you've read. You know, you bring an audience that got hooked on the uh, comedy, on the punditry and satire and the setting of you sitting with a bunch of your mates, uh, sharing a towel in a basement in East London, you know, in the caliphate uh, and... And all of a sudden, you then, in the next episode, are talking about actually quite, uh, either quite profound or certainly quite intellectual concepts. As you say, deconstructing them, making them accessible, but it's still the same format. It's making them personal. Well, exactly. Like, it's still the same. You know, you're not going on to another podcast. You're not necessarily changing uh, the, the, the way you were 
approach it like that the audience is still theoretically the same and yet all of a sudden they're confronted with with a much more in-depth type of content well uh, much like again literally everything about our podcast it happened by accident um because there was just one week where the rest of the guys weren't available i had the mixer at my house and due to a and verso just put a bunch of books on sale and i'd happened to have ordered some recently Mm. and so i just decided to talk about a book for an hour and and you love the sound of your own voice so you thought (laughs) let's do it again yeah no no that's not just common to every podcaster um and so what i guilty (laughs) guilty oh god you overpronounced that guilty um so what i did was i just said okay that's the episode this week, I guess. I'm just going to open this book and talk about it. And it was Psychopolitics by Byung-Chul Han, mm-hmm. which is really, really good and remains one of my favorites. Um, and it just sort of went from there because I decided because the feedback on it was great. So I just said, OK, I, I like having a break from the constant japing um, <laughs> and, and, and the constant capering and parody and flim flams and other scrapes. I like the break from that. I like to be because we're we're skating over a lot of these serious topics mm. in order to like, you know, write a, a fake article by Brendan O'Neill. You know, we're do we're <laughs> we're engaging with these topics, but we're not delving into them. And I think that even though we are a comedy show, like people find us funny. I think because even if they don't quite know the words for all these top these different academic concepts yet these different academic concepts are explaining something that they feel at base something that they know to be true mm. and and that and that almost once a month a month just having that space to be like he, by the way here is here's why we find this so affecting mm. uh, i think people like that and i personally find it very very almost therapeutic mm. yeah i mean it is quite unique and and extraordinary that the guests from Trash Future also host a show about phenomenology uh, or whatever whatever else comes in the books that you're reading in, in comic book <laughs> Stay life. tuned. Um, right. So actually, let's uh, talk about the other card out of uh, the deck, possibly, um, which is this uh, website you guys are launching. <laughs> I'm sighing. I can't, I can't, oh, my God. Like, honestly, because... Well, yeah, this is precisely my point. And I think that this speaks a lot more to, to the topic of red hacks in a way. Uh, so to contextualize, it's called uh, gettingyourdicksuck.com. Correct. Um, the idea behind it is to actually have a, an investigative journalism, a journalistic website. Mm-hmm. Um, For local news mainly. News out there, um, except that it has this ridiculous name. Now, obviously, as a full-time serious journalist that I am, uh, I think you're making a mockery of my career uh, in one swift uh, uh, URL. But that said, I thought I'd give you the chance to explain yourself, sir. <laughs> Account for getting your dick oh, Riley. God. <laughs> uh, okay, so um, I'll exp- so getting your uh, was born of a uh, a conversation that I was having with uh, Milo, one of the other co-hosts, um, when we were walking back from the Tesco's nearby with some <laughs> San Pellegrinos for ourselves, because it's very addictive. Um, and we were having this conversation about what would be, not what would you do with a billion dollars, but what would be the funniest thing to do with a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. And can't believe I hang out with you guys enough times <laughs> now that this makes perfect sense to me. 
And so we we said, you know, what would be incredible is if you hired the world's greatest news team, a group of pedigree journalists um, who were <laughs> paid who were paid like an ex not just a living wage, but like a wage that reflected the hard work that they did, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, like, like celebrity editors, all this, mm-hmm. like just the not an op-ed writing that didn't seek balance, but that sought for sought truth. Mm. Like the ideal of what we would hope a are you a aiming to hire Paul Mason as your editor in chief? <laughs> Paul, call us. Um, oh, God, but the only catch would be that it was called gettingyourdicksuck.com so that inevitably when its stories the stories that it broke investigatively which it, which it would do all the time mm-hmm. were mentioned on the BBC the BBC anchor then had to say the phrase gettingyourdicksuck.com <laughs> and again it's so the at at base the idea is like okay look we we make money on Patreon mm-hmm. um and we decided that we are going to how much of this is going to how much of it and when is sort of a, still an, an open question because we're still like financing equipment and so on um but that our our intention has been to create this as as a site that we will actually pay investigative journalists to do journalistic work in the hopes of breaking the story that makes the BBC say the URL of of the site because we realized or the name of the site, because we realized that this was actually possible. And the target of satire in this case, uh, number one, was we needed a, we wanted to do a newsletter and didn't just want to do a newsletter. Mm-hmm. We wanted to have a website that wasn't just trashfuture.com, all things trash future. Um, <laughs> the, your your trashfuturehub.geocities.gifs. Um, we didn't want that. We wanted it to be another sat, another layer of a joke about something. Mm. And so the target of the satire here isn't journalism or journalists. The target of the satire is the fact that, um, and also it probably bears mentioning that half our audience is also American, Mm. um, that especially in America, but increasingly here uh, in the UK, local, local, high quality local journalism is um, disappearing Mm. uh, because even though it's an essential service that people want, um, capital won't provide it because yeah. it doesn't provide it doesn't provide um, growth. I mean, aside from just disproving the efficient market hypothesis, <laughs> because it's it's an essential service that people want that capital just won't provide. Mm. Um, we are the target of the satire in this case is as ever capital because we are we are doing what capital can't. We're providing an es- an essential service as you know bare bones and as to the best of our ability. Um, and the, the title, I guess, is thumb, is thumbing our nose at those, you know, the news conglomerates that can't. I've been thinking about this for the last couple of days, how what we're doing does and doesn't fit with a program about journalism, because what we're doing is, it's not journalism, it's media in a way, but it's not journalism. And so I don't, I can't say that I'm finding meaning in uncovering the true nature of something, which is, or reporting on the facts or whatever it is that journalists do to find meaning in what they do. We're finding meaning in something else because we don't do that. We, I think we, we try to make jokes. We try to be funny, make, make people laugh, make ourselves laugh mostly. Um, And just try to 
as much as we can for our meager ability to do so, try to try to find try to turn a couple of things upside down if we can. I think that's a, a good way to uh, wrap up this episode. Before uh, we finish, though, I always ask my guests what they're reading at the moment. Obviously, you have a whole show about what you're reading at the moment. So what are you reading that you're not talking about on uh, Comic Book Club? So this is actually a, um, a point of consternation between um, me and my girlfriend, uh, which is that she says, Riley, you never read any fiction. Um, why don't you read any fiction? You're constantly just reading theory. Um, so right now the theory book that I'm, so oh, this is a two, two part answer right now. The theory book that I'm reading is, um, uh, never ending nightmare. Um, which is, uh, going to be one of the, I've just cracked it open. I have no, no idea what it says. Um, I'm pretty sure it's about neoliberalism. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> Shocker. No. Um, but, and, and, um, uh, so I'm, that's going to be for an upcoming comic book club uh, mm -hmm. that I'm going to talk about. Uh, I'm also <laughs> this could be this could spawn a whole other conversation. Um, I'm also revisiting uh, one of the science fiction books I read when I was a teenager, um, uh, which is the Eisenhorn trilogy, which okay. is set in the universe of Warhammer Forty Thousand about an Imperial Inquisitor hunting demons on a hive world. It is so much fun. It's pure pulp. I love it. Really? No, that sounds great. I mean, two great uh, recommendations, I'm two sure, great taste, to taste great our together. Um, listeners. Thank you so much, Riley. This was so much fun. Thank you, Milo. Thank you, Saint, who's been putting up with us whilst he works. I am Jonah Ramiro, and this was another episode of Red Hacks, a show about being a left-wing journalist in a neoliberal world, hosted by Politics Theory Other. If you like what you've heard, please don't forget to subscribe to Politics Theory Other on iTunes and leave a review. While Red Hacks is currently done pro bono, Politics Theory Other needs your support, so please consider becoming one of our patrons for as little as $3 a month, which is just over £2, at patreon.com forward slash Paul Theory Other. <laughs>